I did feel like I was pressuring him saying, hey, you know, I might be infertile. Maybe we should try soon. And he definitely was not ready. And I wish I would have would have known that. I wish I was a little wiser at that age and known, do not try to pressure someone. Hello. Me, me just telling you right before this, I'll give you a big intro and then me just with a hi. Hi. <laughs> um, well, you guys, hi, I'm back from a month and a half long hiatus and I'm only here because Nancy reached out to me on the Today or Not podcast page and um, she had an amazing idea for a podcast and discussion that we're going to have today. So I'm super grateful. We kind of chatted a little bit about this prior, but it's so exciting having a medium like this where, you know, you basically are a small business or a small individual that is just no agenda. That's just chatting to people with relatable stories. And I think we're so burnt out from the like day-to-day media that is obviously just, I mean, they're huge conglomerates that are pushing a narrative that, you know, they're trying to basically make a monetary income and this is not what this is about. So I'm like super excited to just continue to bring on people with incredible stories and, so I guess we can kind of hop right into it. Um, Nancy, I'd love for you to just kind of give like a background of who you are, how I'm like your day-to-day life, and then maybe like what you do and all that good stuff. Okay. Yes. So I'm Nancy. I am 31. I live in the IE in SoCal in Rancho Cucamonga. And let's see, for fun, I dance. So I do aerial arts. I do pole, lira, silks, and hammock. Uh, I have two dogs, two senior pets that I take care of. Uh, They're a handful. And I work in commercial real estate, mostly a little bit of residential real estate. And I also manage a truck dealership for my father. It's a family business. Oh, that's so cool. Honestly, okay. When you reached out, I creeped so hard on your Instagram page. And I was like, you are so talented. Like, how did you get into, okay. So well, you had reached out and you said you did, um, you trained on, I, I'm going to butcher this, but Lyra silks and yes. hammock. What does that mean? Uh, so Lyra is the Lyra hoop. It's a big giant hoop that's suspended in the air. And it looks kind of like the Cirque du Soleil dancing that you would see in Vegas. And I also do pole dancing and silks and hammocks. So that just means that I mostly train at a studio. I do have a pole at home, so I can train at home as well. And I perform at shows. The studio that I train at has, uh, you know, they've kind of slowed down on shows with the pandemic, but we usually have shows three or four times a year. So I think the next show will be in May. So I'm going to start preparing for that. And it's, it's fun. It's like a, you know, black box theater where it's a very small community based theater in the studio and uh, welcome for all ages. I think the shows are 18 and over, but uh, usually she does have teen classes and children's classes, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a big community and uh, we all just dance and move together and it's like therapy to me. That's so incredible. Honestly, like I'm a huge, uh, like I'm a huge fitness junkie and like I support anybody that has any kind of like physical talents and abilities, 
but to watch the kind of like upper body strength that you need to have to even like be on that pole. Like I can't even make it through a monkey bar, but I can squat like double my body weight. So it's so nuts watching like what you're able to do and what you're capable to do. So I just admire you for it to like the millionth degree. Thank you. Thank you. Man, if you can squat like that, you should probably try pole. You can use your legs more in pole. So Dude, well, that would be good for you. If you ever teach, I will absolutely make a fool of myself and take your class. <laughs> I will drive to the IE for you. Oh gosh. Okay. You can come take a class with me. I don't teach anymore. I did used to teach uh back in like 2014 to 2016, but I kind of gave up my teaching uh schedule just too busy with work and everything else, but I, I did used to teach as well, just pole dancing though, not not lira or silks. Okay, well that's rad. <laughs> yeah, but one day, one day we'll train together. One day, one day. I'm I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. But I guess the two things that we really are kind of focusing on today is um, chronic pain and then egg freezing. And my assumption too, the more I started kind of like researching and reading about it, I was like, wow, I felt like these two kind of really like intertwined. I would love to know like, okay, so like what endometriosis is and then as well as like IBS and then we can kind of handle like, you know, like the types, the processes, how it started, like, but maybe, and I've got a couple stats too that I can throw. Okay. Yeah. So I have suspected endometriosis and endometriosis is when there is endometrial tissue, which is usually what's your uterine lining that presents outside of the uterus itself. So it can attach to your bladder, your bowels, your ovaries, the pelvic lining. It's even gone up to the lungs and the diaphragm in some cases. So it is tissue that begins to grow as scar tissue. It looks like a web outside of where it should be, right? And that scar tissue is very sensitive. So it can start flaring up when your period is coming or certain triggers can set it off and uh, very debilitating pain. It can cause infertility. It can, depending on what organs it's attached to, it will affect those organs. So if it's attached to the bowel, you have a lot of uh, digestive problems, digestive issues, which is what they believe that I have, right? Uh, So that kind of leads me to where I have not done the laparoscopy that is a laparoscopy diagnosis that is what will definitively diagnose endometriosis. They can tell you they suspect it. They can do other diagnostic testings. Um, they can, you know, do ultrasounds and just make sure that there is no cysts in the ovaries or anything else. But without doing a laparoscopy diagnostic test, which is a pretty invasive surgery, they do have to go into your abdominal cavity. They make about three incisions. And they inflate your belly with air and they look for this endometrial tissue that is growing in areas that it should not be. Um, So without that definitive diagnosis, I can't really do much. They can just kind of treat me as if I have endometriosis, but I have not wanted to do the laparoscopy because it can cause more infertility. So I have been waiting for a chance to hopefully try to get pregnant, hopefully have a child. And then I would go through with the laparoscopy. I just, I've never tried to get pregnant. So I don't know if, if I have any infertility or not, but the risk of going through that surgery 
and possibly causing infertility is so scary to me that I won't do it. Um, so, and even with a definitive diagnosis, if they do give you, you know, if they do the laparoscopy and they say, yes, you have endometriosis on your bladder, or yes, you have endometriosis on your bowel, there is not that much they can do. There's no cure. There's only treatments to reduce the pain. So they can try to remove some of that tissue, but it can grow back and it can grow back with a vengeance. It can get stronger. It can attach to more areas, kind of like scar tissue, like a keloid, you know, it'll, if you remove it, it can grow back worse. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very touchy surgery that doesn't really have too many positive outcomes for me. So I wouldn't want to go through it. That's so interesting. And so with endometriosis, is it that it runs like hereditary in your family? And if you don't mind me asking, or is this kind of like that has proposed itself or posed itself like in your later years, kind of like, what did that look like? And like, how did you start noticing that this was an issue you were dealing with? Yeah, so it can be it can run in families. It can be hereditary. I don't know anyone in my family that has had it, but I do believe that is that may come down to the fact that it is so hard to get a diagnosis. There, are, it one it affects one in ten women, but there are many women that suffer with it for years, like you know, ten, twelve years, and they had no idea that it was endometriosis because either they don't have the accessibility to get the surgery, they don't have access to that type of healthcare. Or, or like me, maybe they don't want to do the surgery because they don't really see too much uh, positive outcomes after receiving a diagnosis since there is no cure. Mm-hmm. So many, many women might be suffering with it or many people with a uterus might be suffering with it and not realize that it is endometriosis just because, you know, the only way they will tell you is if they do a laparoscopy. If not, they will just say, we suspect it. And the reason why they suspected it for me was because of the IBS issues. So I started going to the doctor in about 2012. So I was about 21 at that time and just had very discomfort, a lot of bloating, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of uh, constipation, a lot of pain with bowel movements. So I had my first colonoscopy and they didn't find anything. They're like, you know, you're healthy 21 year old, there's nothing going on just, you know, maybe try eating more fiber and (laughs) have more probiotics and stuff. So that, that didn't really do anything for me. But with a colonoscopy, there's no way for them to see endometriosis because it would attach on the outside of the bowel and a colonoscopy goes in the bowel. So that kind of did not help. And I, I did see a few different gynecologists and gastroenterologists. I can say, I can't say that one. We're going to have to cut that one. Back. That's okay. I did sit a few gynecologists and GI doctors and they both kind of work together. And with all the symptoms that I had, they said that they suspect there's endometriosis on the bowel that is affecting my digestive system. So that's why I would have all those chronic pain issues with, uh, you know, chronic diarrhea and then alternating with constipation and then pain with bowel movements and just a lot of discomfort pretty much everything I eat makes me sick and at this point I don't think it's what I'm eating I do think that there is endometriosis growing on the bowel but you know I'm still scared to do the laparoscopy uh, until I try to have kids 
So that that's is my, I can't honestly, I can't even like imagine how you go through that. Cause I feel like I get like a tiny stomach pain and I'm like crying for days or like, I mean, you know, like as women, it's like you have your period and it's like the older you get, the mm-hmm. heavier your symptoms are. And it's like, you're debilitated for a week. So I mean, for you, are you seeing that you are like on and off with the pain or is it like consistent every single day? Like, what does that look like for you and your like day-to-day battle? Yeah, you know, it's pretty consistent. There are days that it's a little bit better and there are days that I have to just take ibuprofen on the clock just to get things done. Sometimes it is like a roller coaster. I'll have three good days and then four bad ones and then one day's good, one day's bad. So I never really know what my day is going to go like and it makes planning or scheduling really hard. Um, So, and like I said, the symptoms range, but it is mostly IBS related symptoms. Um, Let's see what else I have here. Yeah. And like also just like for, uh, you know, other other people to kind of know, I looked at some stats. So I was looking at UCLA Health and some of the interesting stats that I found were that approximately 10% of reproductive aged women have endometriosis. And then endometriosis is seen in 12 to 32% of women having surgery for pelvic pain and is in 50% of women having surgery for infertility. And then between 20 wow. and 40% of women with infertility have will have endometriosis. So I just thought that that was like quite interesting. And then taking it into like the IBS portion, um, they were saying that I found this on aboutibs.org is that 10 to 15% of people actually suffer IBS and then a significant portion. So 35 to 40% of individuals who report IBS in the community are male and approximately 60% to 65 are female. So just in case anybody was curious about who it affects and how, um, I thought that those are pretty prominent from, you know, uh, credible resources. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people do not know about endometriosis, but we might have a friend that could be suffering for, from it and they might not even know because it's not talked about as much. And I do think maybe the only reason that it was brought up with my gynecologist was because of the IBS problems and all the stomach pain that they had to look in, okay, well, is, could it be something else causing it? Could it be something gynecological that's causing all of your bowel problems? Mm-hmm. Um, so is there yeah, anything that's how they kind of connected? Uh-huh. I was gonna say, is there anything that, so I know you mentioned ibuprofen <clears throat> and you kind of have, you know, you'll have three mm-hmm. good days four bad. Is there anything else that you do to kind of like help reduce? Um, I know that you mentioned there are different diets, medications, and like lifestyle changes. Would you be willing to share? Yeah, of course. Yes. So I have, uh, you know, ibuprofen helps, but I also don't want to damage my organs by taking it every day. So I only use it if I absolutely have to be somewhere at a certain time. And heat helps as well. So heating pads or a hot bath really helps with the pain as well. And even like green tea gives me like a little bit of boost of energy and it also helps. So uh, green tea I don't drink coffee. So that's another thing I can't have. I have a whole list of foods and things that I can't have. And coffee is one of them that I miss the most. So, As I'm drinking yeah, coffee, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I didn't notice that's what you were drinking. But yeah, I stopped drinking coffee when I was about 22 or 23. So uh, how many years ago? Wow, like eight years ago. Wow. <laughs> it's been a long time. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I have tried low FODMAP which anyone that has been struggling with GI issues with any digestive issues has probably been told to try low FODMAP diet. 
and it limits certain kind of starches or sugars that you would be eating and foods that would irritate the colon. I tried it. I did it with a nutritionist, uh, you know, and a dietitian with the guidance of my gastroenterologist. So I did everything exactly how they how they wanted it to. It was a very difficult diet because a lot of foods that you can't eat, um, and it didn't do anything. It didn't do anything for me. So I, they really think that it was not just IBS. They do think that there's something else. Yeah, you know, adhering to the outside of the colon. And then I did try to go gluten free for a couple weeks. That didn't do anything as well. And I have been tested for celiac disease, and I do not have celiac disease. Okay. So that is one thing they ruled out and that's kind of what they've been doing is ruling out okay if you you don't have celiac disease low FODMAP didn't help you you don't have E. coli you don't have H. pylori they kind of just don't know what else to test for at this point yeah. you know the we're all kind of stuck with the only thing I would have left really is doing the laparoscopy which I'm I'm waiting, I'm waiting until I have a chance to try to have children for that. No, and yeah, and also I I learned this from so I started speaking with an Ayurvedic practitioner on different health tips and just asking, you know, at this point, I'm trying anything I can to feel better. So Mm -hmm. I have tried going through uh, the Western medicine. And now I'm just going to try different, different areas. So I did speak with an Ayurvedic practitioner. And she gave me some tips that really helped with my IBS type symptoms. So she said that for my body type and what, you know, it seemed like my body was not digesting food well, and it, it just kind of passes through my system very quickly. Mm-hmm. So she suggested to have less raw or uncooked foods, which I love smoothies. I love like fruit bowls and all that. Wow. And she said, try to lay off on that for a bit and see if it makes a difference. And it actually did. So you know, raw fruits and raw veggies are pretty hard to digest. Mm-hmm. They're healthy for you. They're great for you, but they're hard on the digestive system. So I did cut back smoothies. I cut back acai bowls, salads, all my favorite oh. things. And it actually did help. But then, that, you know, it kind of just leaves you with a lot of carbs and sugars, mm-hmm. which um, is kind of different from what I was used to eating. I always try to stay on the healthy, leaner side, but I cut back a lot of raw fruit, raw veggies and smoothies. I started eating less meat. So I don't eat red meat as much anymore. I eat chicken and turkey, but no, not really beef. And I, I've never really liked pork. So pork also upsets my stomach. Yeah. So just those things. And then also she suggested not and this is just, you know, for me for what I was going through, she suggested I try these things. So I'm not saying it'll help everyone. Yeah. But she suggested not inverting during my period, like not going upside down during my actual menstruation period. Wow. And I said, well, I do pole and Lyra and I'm upside down like, for every class. How am I, how am I going to do that? So I, now I just, if I do go to class, I won't invert. I'll just do everything that I can do standing and I'll do pull-ups and I'll do different things, but I just won't go upside down anymore. And it has made a difference during those days when I am on my period so there is some some method to the madness (laughs) is there like a reasoning why she said inverting was it like might be an issue yeah yeah so she said in Ayurveda they don't recommend a backflow of your menstruation so they do not recommend going upside down while you are actually bleeding the rest of the month is fine 
but something with the backflow of your period might cause my periods to be more painful. Wow. And it has worked. I just, I don't invert anymore during my period and I don't need as much ibuprofen. And she also suggested limiting cardio or heavy, very heavy exercises during my period as well. Mm-hmm. So now during my period, I rest more. I, I do some light yoga, some stretching. I will still do aerial, but I just don't really go upside down. I'll just hang from things. Yeah, yeah. And the heating pad, my warm bath really helps. Chamomile tea as well. Like herbal teas help. And yeah, those were the Ayurvedic tips that she suggested to me. And then on days where the, you know, the bowel movements just won't stop if there's chronic diarrhea for a couple of days, I have to take Imodium, which just completely stops your system. And then I can get things done. I can leave the house. I can make it to my appointments. I can leave the house without, you know, spending hours in the bathroom because that's usually what what is happening when I have these IBS flares is just chronic diarrhea and vomiting. So wow, very, yeah, very difficult to keep food down when I'm having those uh, symptoms. It's interesting. So, that, like, it, it's weird that we're not weird, but it's unique, I guess, maybe for me, because I always thought like IBS wouldn't um, induce like vomiting, but I guess it is just a matter of like keeping anything in your system. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, the symptoms vary for everyone, but for me, my body just does not want to keep anything, anything in. So either it's coming out of one end or the other, I either have diarrhea or I'm vomiting. Uh, so the emodium does help stop the system, but again, it's not recommended for daily use or very, uh, very often. So I only take it if I have to make it somewhere. Like if I have to be at work by 9am for sure, then I'll take it. Yeah. Or if I have a a dentist appointment, a hair appointment, then sometimes I have to take it or else I will not make it on time. Wow. Even if I wake up three hours, four hours ahead, I can be in the bathroom that whole time. Wow. So it's exhausting. It's very exhausting. Well, I feel like it's very and, like stressful and there's, it's like very like anxiety driving, you know? Yeah. And then that's another, you know, they do believe that anxiety can trigger IBS flares. So it's just, I have anxiety from the IBS and I probably have IBS also from the anxiety. Who knows? Oh my God. It's just this never ending cycle. It, it is, it does give me a lot of anxiety, not knowing, will I make it on time? And I love to be on time. I hate being late to things. So I would rather just take some medication and be on time somewhere. But it, it is, you know, it does give me a lot of anxiety or even just trying to plan like a dinner date or trying to plan to go have, to go hang out with friends or to be somewhere at a certain time is very difficult as well. Yeah. I just never know how I'm going to feel. One day I can be fine. And the next day I'm stuck in bed or stuck in the bathroom the whole time. Are you, do you feel confident and or comfortable being able to like, uh, be like vulnerable with your like close friends and your significant other and like your family? Or do you feel like it's also something that like you're kind of struggling to find like an equilibrium of like conversation or communication about it? Yeah. So I, I feel very comfortable talking about it with my partner right now. We've been together for three years, so he's seen it all. He's yeah. seen what I go through and he is very, very supportive. And he always asks me, can you eat tonight? Like, cause he knows some nights I'm probably not going to eat. So he will ask, is it okay? Can we go out and eat tonight? Is there something you want? He checks the menu before we go anywhere to make sure that there's something I can eat there. 
Sweet angel. So he's very supportive. Yeah, he's great. And sometimes he's picked up medications for me. He's always looking out for me, taking care of me. He buys me all kinds of heating pads as well. <laughs> so that's good. But I do feel open talking about it with my friends. And I feel like now my group of friends now does understand that if I have to cancel something, it's it wasn't really my choice. I just don't feel well. But I do feel bad if we make plans, you know, two weeks ahead of time. And then when the day comes, I just, I can't leave the house and I have to cancel. Yeah. But they, they understand, they, they see what I go through. They understand the symptoms are sometimes out of my control. It is a little hard with work, just because sometimes I might be the only one that's going to be there that day, or I might be the person that has to open so it is very difficult if I'm like, okay, I have to be there at 9 a.m. I have to open the door at 9 a.m. And I get there and there's already two cars waiting and yeah. I'm like struggling to get out the car, you know. So it it is a little difficult with that. But I do feel comfortable talking about it. And I'm very open. Like my friends are like, wow, you're always talking about the bathroom. I'm like, yeah, I pretty much live in my bathroom. Oh, my so. God. I talk about it all the time. I post IBS memes a lot. I love IBS memes and videos. And even my boyfriend will send me like funny memes and videos about IBS related stuff. So we're very open about it. And, and he's very understanding. And he, he does ask questions like how, how can I help? What, what can we do to help? What, you know, what can you eat? Is there another doctor you want to go see? He's just trying to help me as well any way he can. Is there like, do you have like tips or recommendations that you feel like are really strong on his end that he's like done to support you that maybe somebody else who has a partner with like similar issues can do? Yeah, I think, I think just being understanding that a lot of this chronic pain is out of our control. We can do everything textbook, what they suggest to do to feel good. And we just never know when a flare is going to hit and just not being too attached to certain plans. If we had said, Oh, we're going to go watch this movie here, or we're going to go to this museum or, you know, go dinner, go to dinner here at this time. Then just being very understanding that we might not go if I don't feel good, but also having alternatives like saying hey if you don't feel good to go here let's watch the movie at home let's do this and also giving space like there are times that I don't want to see anyone I don't want anyone here while I'm in the bathroom for hours you know I I just don't want to have to entertain anyone or talk to people so he's very understanding with that so he will say oh you know I know I was going to come over tonight but if you're not feeling well do you want your space and at first, I used to say, no, it's fine. Come over because I felt bad. Yeah. You know, that he would only see me once a week or something and I would cancel. So now that we've been together for three years now, I feel comfortable saying, yeah, I need my space. Yeah. And you so, have to put you first, right? Like at the yeah. end of the day, no one yeah. else is going to look out for you except for you. And like, if you're not present with him, like it, there's almost just like no point of being together, like in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm no fun on those days that I'm going through that chronic pain. I just want silence and heat. So I tell him, yeah, you know what, maybe not tonight. So he knows that. And he set up an Xbox in here Uh so that on days that I'm not feeling good and he knows that I don't want to leave the house, we'll just play Lego, Lego Harry Potter, Lego Star Wars or something. And 
I can sit on my heating pad and either we watch a movie or we play video games. And video games are actually very distracting when you have pain because you're so focused on the game that it, it kind of helps. So that might be another tip is play video games when you're in pain. I love that. No, that's perfect. I feel like anything to kind of like keep your mind off it, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like it's, I mean, prior to your partner now, has it affected like your dating life as well? before or did you ever feel like there were people that would maybe like reject you in that sense or feel like you were like lying or making things up like I feel like for people that don't know what you know like chronic pain is or maybe that have never like dealt with something similar they might just think that like oh this person's a compulsive liar or like oh this person is exaggerating right like do you have you like felt that before yeah not so much the exaggerating or denying part I do feel that they might not have understood it. Like they might've just thought, oh man, is she eating really bad? Is that why her stomach mm. always hurts? Or it thought that I was doing something to make it worse, but I was not doing anything. That's just, my body was reacting to everything that I eat. Yeah. And anytime I would get my period, my body just flare up and I'd be, you know, I wouldn't be able to go to work, wouldn't be able to meet up with anyone. So what I do feel, how I do feel that it affected my dating before my current partner, I feel like I may have put a lot of pressure on the partners for a future. Like, okay, are we going to get married soon? Are we going to have kids? And even if I didn't explicitly say it, I'm, I feel like I may have been a little bit more pushy. Mm -hmm. So now, now I understand, you know, you, you cannot pressure someone into starting a life with you when they're not ready. Mm -hmm. And, and I do feel like I had a, a five-year relationship before my current partner right now. And we were together for years, for five years, right? And he was very understanding. My chronic pain wasn't as bad then, but if we were on trips, there was some times that I'd end up just staying in the hotel room and we'd have to just stay in. I couldn't leave. I you know, would all of a sudden get this pain flare and it, it did cause strains on the relationship where he wanted to travel. He wanted to do things. And I was just, I couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. My stomach would not allow it. And also on, on top of that, I did feel like I was pressuring him saying, Hey, you know, I might be infertile. Maybe we should try soon. And he definitely was not ready. And I wish I would have, would have known that. I wish I was a little wiser at that age mm -hmm. and known do not try to pressure someone. Um, and we ended up splitting up and it was mostly because we wanted different things. I wanted to have a child within the next couple of years and he was not ready. But that breakup was very smooth. You know, we just said, hey, it sounds like you want to be, he said, hey, it sounds like you want to be a mom soon and I do not want to be a dad anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So we just kind of agreed that we wanted different things and oh, I was so heartbroken. I thought, oh, five years yeah. and now I have to start over again. And I was just very stuck on that infertility, uh, you know, infertility scare that I might be infertile, I might have fertility issues because yeah. of the possible endometriosis. But as I got older, I realized definitely can't push anyone into it. And if it's meant for me to have kids, then I would. So I just kind of eased off on that. But I do feel like the first couple of long term relationships I had during those years that the chronic pain started. So around the time I was 21, I think I was just trying to find a future baby daddy, you know, yeah. I just wanted someone to have children with and, 
and I think I was ignoring a lot of red flags yeah. because I would just think, oh, okay, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get married soon. Maybe we'll have kids soon instead of thinking, does this guy actually make me happy? And yeah. And as I realized, okay, no, I need to date and find someone that makes me happy and be happy with myself. And then if we decide that we do want a family, then we will. And that's kind of how how I ended up with this current partner. I was single for a few years, just kind of hung around, nothing serious with anyone. And he was my friend for five months before we ever kissed or did anything. So yeah, so I just realized, wow, like this guy understands and he's very caring and we're just like best friends. And then it kind of just happened. So I do feel like I got lucky that now I found I found my best friend and that we're also in love. So it just that's kind of what it feels like. Like I'm in love with my best friend. But with the other relationships, I do feel that it was me that was putting pressure on them. Kind of like, oh, what do you think about these kid names? And oh, how many kids do you want? And just very, very pushy. And that was so wrong. So wrong of me. I wish I can go back and not think that way. But luckily, I mean, I never, I never got pregnant with any of them. So I ended up with my, my current partner. So I'm glad that my pushiness didn't end up in a pregnancy. Well, and you'd be surprised too. I think a lot more people than you expect actually date for like children and kind of like that I'm um, married lifestyle versus actually like dating to date and enjoying their partner. And like you said, right, like being with your actual best friend, like your quote unquote soulmate, the person that you want to grow with and change with, like they're basically in it for the wrong reasons because they end up being a little bit more a little bit more self-serving just because they know that either they have a timeline, they've really wanted this since they were a kid, um, or they might know, you know, in the next couple of years, they can't have kids, whatever that may be. So I'm like so excited for you to actually be able to have, you know, a partner to, that, again, that just gets it that you love and that you, you know, for a fact that you will be like starting a family with him and, you know, he gets that you've like, obviously like frozen your eggs and all of that. So that's yeah. that's bomb. So, yeah. which is a, such a great transition, I think, for the egg freezing piece of this. Um, I would love to know more. Um, I'll just kind of like throw out a stat. So, something I'm curious about as we kind of get into this is, I was doing the research and like you know, I, I had the basic understanding of what egg freezing was, and I'll kind of have you go through it, but. What was interesting is that currently women using their own frozen eggs in treatment have a success rate of 18%, 30% with a frozen uh, donor eggs. So I would love to know, like, from your standpoint, kind of like, what are the basics? Like, how does it work? And, you know, like, why do people choose to do it if, like, the success rate is lower? Yeah, so it's actually very hard for them to determine success rates right now because there's not that much research. There's limited uh, you know, limited time frame of research. It just got released from experimental uh, egg freezing. Just got released from experimental. I don't know if it would be an experimental category or exactly how they label it, mm-hmm. but that was in 2012, I believe. So, social egg freezing is what they call it, where you decide that you want to egg freeze without a medical reason, or if you're not going through IVF, if you're just freezing them for the future. They call it social egg freezing, mm-hmm. and it's so fairly new that it is hard for them to give good success rates because a lot of people haven't used them. A lot of people froze them and then either they have not used them or they did not end up needing them. 
And also another reason, let's see, I have a, a list here of why it is <laughs> difficult to pin down these success rates. No, well, actually, oh, maybe yeah. before you go in that, like, oh, maybe okay. like a basic explanation of like what it is, like, let's go into like what it really is, just for that people later. that don't know. Okay, yes. So egg freezing is the first part of IVF. So if you are going to do IVF, you would have to go through an egg retrieval. Mm -hmm. So what egg freezing is, is you take hormones to stimulate your ovaries, you stimulate the follicles in the ovaries to mature all of the eggs that are in the follicles in your ovaries. And then those eggs are removed through an egg retrieval procedure and they freeze them, they vitrify them. So it's a very fast freezing system that they use now. It used to be a slower egg freezing system and they wouldn't thaw as great because they would get little crystals, but now they do it very quickly and the eggs freeze and you're able to use them almost as if you were using a fresh egg once they saw them. So on that one, the success rates are very close from a frozen egg and a fresh egg transfer. So that is very similar. The The difference is very small on the percentages on the success rates of those. So you would have to do the egg retrieval in order to do the IVF, but not everyone freezes the eggs. Sometimes they use a fresh transfer and then sometimes you can freeze them. So in the case of social egg freezing, it is mostly people deciding to freeze them for future use, whether it's because they're going to go through a cancer treatment, whether they're going through a gender affirmation surgery, whether they're, you know, if they're transitioning and if they just want to focus on their career or they want to wait till they find the right person. So there's many reasons why someone would decide to freeze them mm -hmm. instead of, you know, use fresh eggs. And also if you just freeze the eggs, you're not tying it down to a certain sperm, you know, to turn it into an embryo. So if you're not sure if you want to have children with a certain person, or if you don't want to use uh, donor sperm, then you would just freeze the egg itself okay. instead of freezing an embryo. Embryos are more stable, but the way that they freeze them now, uh, that they freeze the eggs now and the embryos is they do it so quickly that they won't form crystals in them. So they are safe just as if you were going to use a, an embryo as well. So the rates are very similar if you're going to use a frozen egg to a frozen embryo as well. Okay. And then what's like the, so then like, what is the process? So you yourself, you've done the yeah. research, you've picked the, you've picked the place, you've, you've made up your mind. What happens next? Yeah. Okay. So you go in and they first start with your baseline results or your baseline labs wait let me start again <laughs> okay. you go in and they start with your baseline lab results they'll look at your amh which is your anti-malarian hormone and the amh gives them an idea of how many eggs they would be able to retrieve during the egg retrieval procedure how many eggs they'll be able to freeze it's not a definitive number but it gives them a very a good estimate of how many eggs they'd be able to retrieve. And that's with a blood test. So they draw some blood, do the AMH test, and they also do an antral follicle count. So they will do a vaginal probe ultrasound. And so they do a, you know, intravaginal ultrasound. So all of the ultrasounds you'll be doing during the cycle will be intravaginal. And they look at your ovaries, they see how many follicles are there. And with the follicle count, 
and the AMH number, they're able to estimate, okay, we can probably get, you know, 18 eggs, we can probably get 10 eggs. Mm -hmm. So it's very specific to your age and your body. So it's very hard for them to just estimate, you know, over the phone, like, hey, we can get you 20 eggs, or we can do this, they have to really do labs and meet with you and kind of see what your goals are and see how many eggs they can they can retrieve how many mature eggs they would be able to retrieve and that's another thing they ask you is how many children do you want do you want two children do you want one when do you want to start so that way they kind of know how much well how many eggs you would need to freeze if they know that you if you just want one child then okay you don't need to freeze as many if you want two and you don't want to start until you're about 38 then you're going to need to freeze more is there, so like, ask you. is there like an egg count per child that you want to say? Like I walk in and I was like, I want two children. Like, do they have like a recommendation that they give you? Yeah. So I'll give you an example for mine. It does depend again on that antral follicle count. So it's very specific to every person and on your AMH because we might have different AMHs even though we're the same age and we might have different follicle counts even though we're the same age. So that can change how many eggs, you know, they'd be able to get, but there is uh, an amount. Okay. Let me restart this. Gosh, once it gets into numbers, I get a little. So you're totally good. Right you can even give okay. estimates or yeah. However you want to yeah. take it away. Okay. All right. So for example, for me, I had an AMH lab result of 3.4 and the average is one to 4% is for the AMH average. And I'm 31. So that was when I uh, did my egg freezing. I did it this last November was when I started. So at a age 31, AMH of 3.4, I had an antral follicle count, which is when they do the ultrasound and they count the little follicles in the ovaries. I had an antral follicle count of about 18 to 20 follicles. So pairing those two together, the doctor said that he would possibly be able to get 15 eggs, right? So he said, okay, we'll get 15 eggs. From those 15, he was assuming we would mature 12 of them, that 12 of the eggs would make it into the freezer, that they would be mature enough to survive freezing and they would make it into the freezer. Mm -hmm. Out of those 12, they assume that 10, uh, 10 to 11 will thaw properly. You lose some of them when you thaw them, so they don't all make it. Oh. Um, but if they freeze 12, so the the actual percentage that they believe they will be able to thaw is 90 to 95% of however many eggs they froze. Okay. And and that's at my age and kind of with my, you know, count of eggs that they would do. So that is a 90 to 95%. So they believe that they would be able to thaw 10 eggs, seven to eight of those would fertilize. And three to five of those would make it to blastocyte, which is what they would implant um, if you do IVF. So this is all when you would return for IVF, right? Is when they would thaw them, fertilize them, and then implant them. Mm -hmm. So out of those 15 eggs that they, this was the estimate they gave me at my first appointment, out of those 15 eggs that they would retrieve, they would assume that zero to two would make it to a live birth. Okay. So there is no, you know, guarantee uh, that's another thing with egg freezing is a lot of people think that it's insurance. They say, oh, you know, it's fertility insurance. And it's really not. You never know how the eggs are going to fertilize. You don't know how they're going to thaw. You don't really know the quality until they join it with the sperm. Wow. So you can freeze 
a lot of eggs, but if they're not a good quality, you won't know until you go to use them. Right. So I legitimately thought it was like insurance. Like I was like, okay, somebody can't get pregnant. They've got eggs. Like, because you hear the narrative is always like from celebrities or people that are out there that like, oh, I froze my eggs like for when I want to get pregnant, basically. Like it's never like people never really talk about the what if or the low percentage, right? It always seems to be this like extremely positive and exciting like aspect, not saying that it isn't, but it makes the person maybe like me who doesn't research it or doesn't think about it. It's like, oh, it's 100% accurate or yeah, they're 1000% going to have the two children that they, they wanted to get out of those eggs. Yeah, so that's another thing when I started looking into it and trying to decide if I was going to do it, I listened to a lot of a lot of podcasts as well and then read a lot of articles where they do make it sound like it is this glorious insurance and it's okay, just freeze your eggs and you'll get a baby later and it's it's not always like that. It could be depending on the quality of the eggs, but you don't really know until you go to use them which could be when you're, you know, if you freeze them when you're 30 and you decide at 38 to use them, and then what if they're not good quality? By the time you decide to retrieve more eggs, you're already 38. So those eggs might not be good quality either. So it is definitely not an insurance. It, It is more of you attempting to preserve whatever fertility you have at that moment. And it is just kind of a risk. It's a numbers game. If if it'll work out or not. So it is not all rainbows like they make it seem and the celebrities, you know, all the celebrities doing it and everything does make it seem like, oh, it's okay, just freeze them. And later on when you're ready, they'll be, it's gonna work. It doesn't always work. Yeah. So, and there are other other issues that could affect it. You know, I mean, when, what age you decide to use the mat could also affect it or the sperm that you use. Mm might not fertilize it properly so there are so many things that can affect the outcomes of those eggs when you decide to use them yeah I read that um the the lifespan that the frozen eggs have is 10 years is that correct or is that dependent on um I guess like age of egg freezing yeah yeah so they do recommend using them within 10 years that's definitely I I think that there are cases where they have used them after 10 years, but they do recommend using them within the 10 years. In the UK, there are laws that you had to use them. I think the law changed recently, very recently, like in the last year, maybe, that you would be able to request a time extension. But before, you only had 10 years to use those eggs. So if women had decided to freeze them at 25 or 26, they would have, you know, have to use them before they turn Uh, 35 or 36 so they have different laws in different countries on that on how long you can use them most of the studies show that there is no decline in egg quality within the five years so if you use the eggs within five years from when you freeze them there's no decline in the egg quality after five years it's a little bit uh not as much research on on the eggs after five years do they suspect a um like deformities to happen within the five to ten year mark, or is it just like an ethical reasoning, or do you know like why the separation? Oh no, I'm actually not sure. I don't think there's any proof of any uh, higher chance of deformities or any anything going wrong with the pregnancies. Mm-hmm. It I don't know if it's an ethical thing or not. That's okay. But there's 
Yeah, there's not that much research on it. It's still such a new, you know, a new area of science. Um, there's a few, uh, you know, a few studies on it, but since they can't really do like a control group and it hasn't been around that long, it's it's very difficult for them to give definitive answers on on all these uh, yeah. success rates or how long the eggs last and everything. But it does seem like they recommend using them within the five to 10 years. So, okay. Wow. That's, yeah, yeah that's super interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. So within the procedure for, how did you prep for the procedure? Is there any kind of like time frame that you needed? And then what was the time frame of the like actual process? And then what's your recovery? Yeah. yeah. So actually I have my calendar here. So for example, you start at least at the clinic that I went to, a lot of the different clinics have different procedures that they follow. Um, but this, this specific clinic that I went to, they start you on a birth control on your day two of your cycle. So yes, this clinic that I went to, they start you on a birth control for about two weeks, right at the beginning of your period. So on day two of your cycle, when you decide, you know, yeah, I'm going to freeze them this month, they start you on this birth control pill. And it's desigen, so it's a very common birth control pill. They start you on it for two weeks. And then you stop the pill and you start light bleeding, uh, spotting. And then your first injections for your hormones, your follicle-stimulating hormone injections, will start four days after that. So in between that time, you are going in for ultrasounds and blood work. You go every other day pretty much. And towards the end, you might have to go every day to the lab. So you want to make sure that you pick a clinic that you can get to easily in the morning. Most appointments are in the morning. So you start, you start the birth control and then you take your last pill after about two weeks. And then three days later is when you would start the injections three to four days later. And for example, I did injections for, let's see, 10 days. So at home, I would do uh, follicle-stimulating hormone injections. They were very small needles, just a, a small subcutaneous. So I was able to do it myself. And some nights, it was two different injections, two different hormones. Mm -hmm. Some nights, it was three. And the very last night, yeah, the very last night, it was three as well. Yeah, three. So it was about 11 days of injections. And in between that time, you are going in for the ultrasounds and the blood work. And the ultrasound, what they're checking, they're checking the follicles to see how big they're growing. That shows them that there are eggs growing in the follicle. Okay. So the eggs are in the fluid that are in the follicles. So they want to see these follicles growing. Like, And you start to get more follicles as well. So when I first started, maybe I had about those 11, you know, 11 follicles, 12 follicles. And as I was going in, they would increase to 17 and then 18. And I think by the end there was 28 follicles. Okay. So it's really crazy to see them popping up, but that's what they want. They want your body to react to the stimulating hormones so they can see the follicles growing. And that, that way they know that the eggs are growing as well. And it is very, a very timely matter. You have to give yourself the injections at the same time every night. So I had to make sure, okay, every night, at 8 p.m. I have to be in my bathroom. I have to have mm -hmm. like, you know, everything ready. And some of the medications have to be refrigerated. So it's not like I can just carry them around with me. I mean, I guess if I had an ice pack or something, I could, no. but I had to make sure that I was always home by 8 p.m. to do my injections. 
and it, you know, it was actually not that bad. I'm not scared of needles, so that probably made it easier, but I would just put some music on. I put my favorite song on mm-hmm. and I would just go for it. I'd just, you know, sanitize the area and they teach you how to do these injections. Mm-hmm. So they give you a full breakdown. They send you videos and you have everything written down on the exact amounts that you need to inject. Uh, so it's not that difficult. Some people choose to have their partner or their parent or a friend do the injections if they get kind of nervous with the needle, but I was pretty comfortable with it. I I think just the music helped me. I would just put it on and do my thing and go for it. So at the end of everything, I did 28 self-injections. And so, so how, a lot. <laughs> how often, so it was every day for 28 days then, correct? So... Uh, no, some nights I did two injections, some nights I did three. So the actual hormone injections, it was a total of 11 days. Okay. Was the actual hormone injections. And then you do your trigger shot, which the trigger shot is the final one. So it's always like a celebratory one. You're like, okay, I'm doing my trigger. I'm ready yeah. to get these eggs out. It's your final one. And that one also, you know, has to be at the right time. You have to do it about 36 hours before your egg retrieval procedure. So they will tell you exactly what time you have to inject it at. Mm -hmm. And that one makes it so that the follicles finish maturing, but they don't want them to release the eggs just yet. So it's kind of this final one that just gives them a little push. Like, okay, mature, you guys are ready to come out, but they don't want them to leave the follicles. If If the eggs leave the follicles, they can't retrieve them and your cycle would be canceled. So they can't get any eggs and you'd have to start all over again. But do you pay more? Very. Yeah. So that's something you have to ask. Each clinic is different. Some of them, most of them will still charge you for, you know, all the medications, all the appointments, everything you came into, they might just deduct what you would have paid for the retrieval process and the anesthesia but they will still charge you for all the medications, you know, you already injected them and everything. So it is a big gamble because I have heard of people that they go through the whole, the whole thing, they make it to the trigger shot. They come in for their final lab the day before egg retrieval. So usually you go in the day before egg retrieval and they just make sure the eggs are still there and they tell you, okay, we'll see you at 7am. You know, you come in for your egg retrieval. They go into that final appointment and the eggs aren't in the, in the follicles anymore. The eggs have left. So they are now in the, you know, in the tubes and they can't, they can't retrieve them there. So it is really, I can't imagine how that feels. It is really scary to know that even though it is a very exact science, Mm -hmm. you never know how your body's going to react. Yeah. Um, So that trigger shot is is very important because they want to mature all the eggs. And then when you go in for egg retrieval, um, it, they do put you under anesthesia. You are usually awake, but it's, you know, you're kind of groggy. It's, it's still under anesthesia. So I don't remember anything from that morning, yeah. but you go in and they, they prep you for the surgery. They don't actually open anything like in your uh, abdomen cavity. Mm-hmm. What they do is it's a vaginal probe. So the same one that they use for the ultrasound. And there is a needle at the end of the probe. And that needle punctures through the vaginal wall. Ouch. (laughs) It totally punctures through. Yeah. But you're under anesthesia, so you don't even feel it. Uh, It punctures through the vaginal wall and it suctions out, this needle suctions out the fluid in the follicles that are inside of the ovary. And in that fluid is the eggs. 
and then they directly pass all that fluid to the lab tech that's in there. So there's a lab tech there that collects the embryologists, right? Mm -hmm. They collect the fluid and they separate the eggs and they freeze them right there in the lab. Wow. So it's a, yeah. And it's a very quick procedure. Um, I got there at 7 a.m. No, I checked in at 6 a.m. The procedure started at 7 a.m. And I was back in my car by like 9 a.m. I think it was a very quick procedure. The actual process where they're, uh, you know, suctioning out the egg, suctioning out the fluid takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Did you have any like very post-surgical quick. pain or anything? I know like once anesthesia wore off. Yeah. Yeah. So as soon as it was so interesting, I was so worried that I would wake up nauseous or in pain because as I was in there prepping while, you know, they're putting the IV in, getting you undressed and everything, Mm -hmm. I can hear the other, the other people coming out of the procedure and a lot of them were all nauseous or in pain. And I said, Oh no, what if that's me? I was so scared. Uh, And I actually felt very confident up until that moment, up until I heard the other people rolling out after they had just had their procedure. And then that's when I started getting worried. But luckily, I was okay. When they rolled me out, I felt fine. And I woke up and I said, is it over? Like, I didn't know that it had happened. I didn't remember. Oh. And he said, yeah, it's over. You're doing good. The you know, the doctor's going to come in and tell you how it went. And of course, the first thing you want to know is how many eggs they got. You're just like dying to know mm-hmm. after you went through all those injections, all those lab appointments everything you're just dying to know how many eggs they got and I was expecting since he had said in the beginning that he would get about 15 eggs I was thinking okay 15 is good so he came in and he says oh you know you did good everything looks great how are you feeling I said yeah I'm feeling great I don't feel nauseous I don't feel any pain at all so the post anesthesia uh, post anesthesia I feel I felt great Mm -hmm. it was good they give you fentanyl so I was feeling good she's loaded up on drugs so great Yes, I was uh, under the anesthesia and the fentanyl. I felt great. So the doctor came in and he says, we got 28 eggs. Holy shit. And I said, oh, eight? Because, you know, he had originally told me 15. So I heard 28. I thought, oh, eight eggs. Okay. And he said, no, uh, 28 eggs. I could not believe it. I was so happy. Oh, my gosh. I cried. I just couldn't believe it. I just felt so accomplished, like I did it. And not to say that obviously people go through this and they might only get four eggs. So I'm not saying that that's a bad result, but uh, I just felt so happy that I was able to get 28 eggs in one cycle. I couldn't believe it. So way above the target number that they had first told me. Huge congrats. That was crazy. Thank you. So that was when I first woke up, he came in and told me that. And it is so strange because I had seen this fertility doctor for, you know, almost every day, every other day for almost a whole month. And then all of a sudden, that was the last time I was going to see him until I decide to use my eggs. So I was like, okay, is this goodbye? Like, so weird that's nuts Uh, so like after all that after all that right you're going through like the highs and lows like I'm sure you're just kind of like walking out of this walking out of this situation like okay like this is done but like looking back at it um did you feel so I know for a fact that it usually puts you through like almost like a pregnancy cycle right usually in a short time span like what was your experience in regards to like the hormonal like hormonal effects like during the process and then is there any kind of like long-term effects that you feel yeah so okay so I'll back up a little bit so he told me he got 28 
And I was so happy, left the clinic, you know, came home. So that's when the post-recovery starts, right? Is right when you get home. And I think the fentanyl was still in my system. So I felt great. Anesthesia was still there. I felt great. And then that evening, uh, the pain hit. So that that fentanyl didn't last that long. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that evening, the pain hit. And it just felt like the worst cramping I've ever had. And it felt like I got punched in the vagina. Like, <laughs> just, you know, I mean, they puncture your wall, they puncture the vaginal wall. So it, you definitely have pain there. So I did feel uh, really sick that first night. And you have to lay flat the rest of the day. So I was just on bed rest. I couldn't really do much that day. And you have to sleep on your back that day. They want you to lay completely flat. So don't sleep on your side. Don't sleep on your stomach. So that first night was kind of rough. Um, they do give you some pretty high uh, high milligram Tylenol. So I took a lot of Tylenol that night. <laughs> and then the next morning, I, I did feel a little better. So by the next day, I started feeling better. And then the third day I was up and moving and back to normal. So it was like about a two day recovery from the egg retrieval procedure. Um, By the third day, I didn't really have any pain. And they do sometimes say that you might bleed. So they recommend wearing a pad. I didn't bleed. I don't know. I just don't bleed as much. So I did not bleed from the procedure. Just a lot of cramping uh, and pain down there. But by the third day, I was better. And what there is a major risk for usually right after the procedure is ovarian hyperstimulation. So that's when your ovaries get too big. And especially because I got so many eggs, they did warn me, Hey, you know, keep, keep an eye out for these symptoms. If you have extreme bloating or weight gain within the next week or so, then come back. But luckily that did not happen to me. That is very, uh, that is a risk that can happen when you get a lot of eggs is that your ovaries might get too big and the fluid that was in the ovaries can leak out into the abdominal cavity. So pretty dangerous, but luckily that did not happen to me, but that is a risk that, you know, you have to talk to your doctor about is uh, ovarian hyperstimulation is possible. It's not as common, but it is more common in younger women. And it is more common, it seems, in younger um like lower BMI, so lower weight women, mm-hmm. just your abdominal cavity is smaller. So yeah. it's, it's a little more common. Um, so yeah, that was the post recovery from the egg retrieval. But as far as the hormones, so during, I actually felt like I had more side effects from the birth control pill than I did from the injections, which probably <laughs> sounds very weird. Like that doesn't make sense. But I uh, birth control pills, I've never enjoyed birth control pills. I, I've been on the Nuva ring for years now. Um, so having to take a birth control pill again at the beginning of this really was not my first choice, but I, I had to do it. So I broke out from the birth control pills and I was super emotional and just very moody and everything, you know, from birth control pills, which is very common. And then by the time that I started the, the hormone injections, I, I felt great. I felt fine. I, I think it's just, maybe it's just a lot of estrogen or something just makes you feel good. I, I felt great. Yeah. I didn't get any side effects with the hormone injections. I thought I was going to gain weight. I was all worried thinking, oh man, I'm going to gain weight or I'm going to, my, my skin's going to change and nothing really happened from the hormone injections. Um, three weeks after the procedure, I was back to normal. I was back to my regular weight. Everything is the same. So 
I haven't had any long-term, you know, it's not very long-term because I just did it in November, but I haven't had any serious side effects other than just what was the acne and the emoness and depression mm-hmm. kind of mild, very mild depressive state with the birth control pills, but I didn't get any crazy symptoms. I, I felt fine. I mean, just the bloating, you do get more bloated. You do feel like tight in the abdomen as your ovaries start growing. So by maybe day seven to like nine of your injections, you start feeling the ovaries just get bigger and bigger. Wow. It feels heavy. Yeah, it feels heavy. So it's not painful, but it just feels like, you know, they're growing, your ovaries are growing in there. So it feels a little uncomfortable to like bend over and grab something. Or if you're sitting, uh, sitting down, like driving, I would feel my ovaries when Mm -hmm. I was driving, I felt like they were getting crunched. But if I was standing up or laying down, it was fine. So that is, yeah, that is another side effect is the ovaries will start, you know, getting bloated. So they start taking up more space, but it wasn't painful. It just, I was very aware that they were growing in there. Yeah. So when you're going through the process, do they tell you anything that you like any activities that you can't do? Like for um, kind of your aerial yoga, for example, like you can't be upside down or you can't do physical activity. Like do, are there the do's and don'ts? Yeah. Yeah. So actually once you start the injections, they recommend that you don't do any heavy exercising and definitely, um, no sex. So they tell you no sex during the injection Mm -hmm. period. You can have sex while you're on the birth control pills. That whole beginning part is fine. Um, So no sex, no heavy exercising, nothing with like twisting motion. So even yoga, Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't allowed to really do yoga because the ovaries get so enlarged that they can twist. Mm -hmm. So the ovaries can twist on themselves and that's pretty dangerous. So no heavy exercising, um, no alcohol. So I stopped drinking. They recommend you stop drinking about three months ahead of time. So I, yeah, I stopped drinking because your eggs can kind of regenerate, not regenerate because they're already in, in your body, but the health of the eggs can take on what you've been eating or drinking for the last like three months. So no alcohol. And I started having the multivitamins, the prenatals three months ahead of time as well. Okay. Oh, and then food wise, do they just tell you kind of like eat like a healthy diet or do they say like no high fibers, like, you know, proteins and veggies? Like, do they recommend anything? Yeah, they did recommend, they did recommend high protein, low sugar. So, you know, they told me to cut out sodas and all that, which I don't really drink soda anyways. Yeah. Um, and caffeine, they said limit it to one cup a day. So I was just having my green tea once a day. Mm-hmm. So you can have coffee, just limit it to once a day okay. during that's just during the, uh, you know, once you start the birth control pills is when they would want that. Um, I mean, it would probably be best to stop caffeine three months ahead or slow down on the caffeine three months ahead, just because all that can affect the equality. And since in the beginning, they do check your labs, they check like vitamin D and uh, TSH, so your thyroid hormone, they check a lot of different hormone levels and your CBC, like your white blood cell count and everything. So if you have low vitamin D, they'll put you on a vitamin D supplement. Um, That happened with me, my vitamin D was low. And I'm like, how I'm always outside. I live in SoCal, but it was still low. So I started taking a vitamin D with calcium and I took a prenatal 
Um, you just want to make sure the prenatals have, you know, folic acid and iron and all that. They'll usually recommend one for you, but uh, pretty much any prenatal will, will be good as long as it has iron and folic acid. Okay. And yeah, other than that, they, they weren't too strict on what I can eat or, or drink, just no alcohol or smoking yeah. okay. for, for that period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the overlooming question, what is the cost of all of this? Oh, yes. Yes. So for me, I chose the package. They had something called the Nest Package. And am I allowed to say the clinic name? <laughs> yeah, whatever you want to do. Okay. All right. So this is for HRC clinic here in Southern California. They have different locations and this was the pricing in November of 2021. So I'm not sure if it's changed right now, but for the package that I did, it was called the nest package and it was 12,800. And this included, yeah, very, very high price for something that's like I said, not an insurance. So it was kind of, just kind of a big risk and gamble. Luckily, my mom helped me pay for most of it. She really wants more grandkids. <laughs> so she said, whatever it takes, I will help you. That is very, very so kind of me. her. Yeah, she has. we have one grandchild in the family, so she wants more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she helped me with that. But honestly, this price is just, I wish it was more accessible for everyone. But this price is very, very high. And this is the average for Southern California. I've seen it higher there was places that it's about 16,000. And then there are places like Arizona or in other states where you might be able to do this for about 8,000. So the price can vary on the clinic and depending what the package includes. So my package included all of the appointments. So all of the labs that I was going in for, um, like the ultrasounds, the blood work, checking the hormone levels, it included all of the medications. And medications can vary depending on person to person because if your body's not, uh, you know, reacting properly to the amount of hormones they give you, they're going to have to give you more hormones. So the medication is always a varying factor. So I chose this one because I thought, okay, it's included. That way I just know exactly what I'm paying. There's not going to be this $2,000 difference in medications yeah. if I need more, more for the uh, hormone injections. And it also includes the egg retrieval procedure, the anesthesia, it includes most of the blood work tests. There was a few that I had to get done separately through my insurance. Um, they should be covered, but for some reason, my insurance did not choose to cover it. So I did have to pay $600 extra oh. for these other lab tests. So that wasn't expected. I thought that it would be covered, but uh, it was just hep, hep B, hep C, HIV, syphilis, chlamydia, uh, and they did not cover that. So I had to pay for that out of pocket. And let's see, it also covers your first two years of storage. So normally for the storage, it can be about six to $800 a year. So this package includes the first two years. After that, I'll start getting billed for the egg storage. And it's an annual fee and it includes all the eggs that were in that batch. So, oh, I skipped a part. Well, let me talk about the price. And then I didn't tell you how many made it into the freezer. So I told you how many they got, but I didn't tell you how many made it in the, into the freezer. Oh, I just but, assumed they all did. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. So let me finish the cost breakdown. Okay, okay. Coat pack. okay. So that includes two years of storage and that's the whole batch of how many eggs they get during this cycle. So it does include 
pretty much everything. The only thing that you would pay out of pocket for this uh, nest package, they call it, it's the all-inclusive egg freezing would be those lab tests that for some reason this clinic does not is not able to process those labs for you so you would have to do them somewhere else so you could expect lab fees of about six hundred dollars around there for those extra um, lab tests okay so this included the storage for all the eggs that made it into the freezer that day so they were able to retrieve 28 eggs and on the second day after the egg retrieval, I got a call from a nurse. Uh, so they don't tell you how many made it into the freezer yet, because when they, when you wake up, they only know how many they got out and then they go through the egg process, and, you know, egg freezing process, and they tell you how many made it in. So I had 21 eggs frozen. So out of those 28 eggs, uh, 21 made it into the freezer. And that's still a high percentage, correct? It's still very high. <laughs> Fantastic. Very high because they were expecting about 15 for me. So, uh, you know, from 15 to actually getting 21 in the freezer, that's a lot, a lot of eggs. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm hoping that with those, I can get one to two, hopefully if I have to use these eggs, one to two babies from that. And they don't ever charge like per egg that you're um, like housing in the freezer, correct? It's always in batch. So some clinics, and I do have a list of questions here that I would suggest people ask when they're choosing clinics, because some clinics instead of an annual, they do a monthly fee, which is kind of strange, but some do a monthly and some do per egg. So depending how many eggs they have in the freezer for you, they'll charge you depending how many eggs are there. And some of them do it per batch of eggs. So however many were retrieved that, that day for that egg retrieval. So that's a, definitely a question that you have to ask is how are your storage fees? calculated are they annual are they monthly is it per egg is it per batch and you also want to ask the safety of the lab do they have generators if there's a natural disaster do they have like a backup plan you know something in place in case the power is to go out what's keeping those eggs frozen mm -hmm. um, and they have they should have safety protocols in place if anything is off with the machines um, they're able to keep those eggs frozen so that's definitely something that you have to consider, you have to ask. And as well as asking all the financing options, you want to make sure everything's laid out up front because you don't want any surprises with fees. Oh, hey, you know, we're going to charge you 2000 for anesthesia or we're going to charge you this much for medication. It's better to just know up front how much are you going to be charged. The only thing that should that could vary is the medication, but everything else they should be able to list out. Mm -hmm. This is what you should expect. Um, like mine was all included, but there's some that might charge you per visit, per lab, per ultrasound, um, you know, and then for the medication. So a lot of things can vary. Um, and that's kind of why I chose the package option, because that way I know, okay, I'm paying 12800 and this is exactly what I'm getting. Yeah, that's, those are such yeah. great questions to ask. I feel like I would have never even thought about like the natural disaster piece. Like that's such a yeah. big thing. And I mean, we know, like, I mean, we've seen what's been happening kind of in the world with, you know, all the power outages and the tornadoes and all these other issues. And obviously not everybody lives in Southern California where we are pretty lucky with the weather that we have, but you assume that most clinics will need something like as a backup. Yeah. They usually have generators and they have systems in place where if, the temperature drops, they, it calls someone and then they it emails another person and it does, they have all these ways to make sure that someone can get to the lab on time to make sure that everything stays frozen. 
at the right temperature. So uh, asking about the lab is very important, asking about the financing, also finding out if would your cycle be canceled if there is a low egg count? Because there has been cases where if, you know, for, for mine, they had, I had about 28 follicles mm -hmm. um, the day before they were going to retrieve. So they knew they were going to get a good amount of eggs. And sometimes people go in for their last scan and they might only have four follicles or five follicles. So they're not going to get as many eggs. Um, so you want to know beforehand, would my cycle be canceled? Because then maybe you don't want to do it there. What if you go through all this yeah. time, all this effort, all the injections, all the money, and then they say like, oh, you know what? Well, there's only five follicles. We might get one to two eggs. We're not going to do it. So you don't want that, you know, hitting you as a surprise. So you want to ask them before you sign anything, before you start anything, is there any reason why a cycle would be canceled if they're like, if there's a low egg count or anything, or would you still do it even if there's only a chance to get one egg? Yeah. Like, will you still do the procedure? So that's important to know why they would cancel, you know, if there's any chances that they would cancel for a low follicle count. And then also asking, would, would you be charged for a canceled cycle? Yeah. Because then, you know, that would not be good. I think sometimes they can apply part of it to your next one if you're going to do it again, but some people might decide not to do it again. Absolutely. So that's, yeah, that's very important. And also asking their scheduling for appointment times, because you want to make sure that it, you can make it because you're there almost, you know, every other day for labs. So you want to make sure, okay, do you guys open early? Do you have evening appointments? You want to make sure that it fits with your schedule because you're going to be there a lot. So yeah. <laughs> having a, a close by clinic and making sure that their schedule works with yours. And, and I would recommend if you can get time off at least the day before egg retrieval and the egg retrieval, obviously, and preferably the day after. So at least three days off because you might not be feeling so good. Yeah. There's people that go back to work the next day, but. After any procedure, like take a day. Yeah, yeah it'd, it'd be good just because you're so bloated and uncomfortable. You know, you could probably work, but you're just so uncomfortable. Your stomach is so tender at that point with all the injections and everything. And yeah, it's, it's good to try to get those at least three days off the day before the day of and the day after I wish I had the whole time I was doing injections off that would have been nice but uh, but I did not yeah. I still had to work <laughs> are there any like research like kind of while you're going through, you were going through this process are there any mm -hmm. resources that you live and die by um, that anybody else can kind of start at because I feel like it can be so overwhelming when you start a journey and you're like, I don't know what's real and what's not. I don't know what's up to date. I don't know who's just posting an article just to post an article, right? And for somebody that's been through it and has had a successful journey, like would love to kind of just get your insight. Yeah, I really enjoy, there is a doctor named Dr. Natalie Crawford and she has a podcast called As a Woman and she talks about all different kinds of fertility and, and periods in general. So not just egg freezing, not just IVF. She talks about a lot of different topics and it is called As a Woman um, by Natalie Crawford. And she does have a website called nataliecrawfordmd.com. And she has a blog and a YouTube as well that she talks about different topics. And she also includes different doctors in her videos and on her episodes and everything. Uh, she, I listen to most of her things and that's where I got a lot of information as well. 
And then there is a blog on the website called Extend Fertility, E-X-T-E-N-D, Fertility, extendfertility.com. They have a blog that has a lot of published research and different articles. Uh, they are a fertility clinic in New York, but they have the blog section that has a lot of info, a lot of resources. Like the latest one was that I had here was from July 16, 2021, and it just kind of shows a different outcomes for different IVF with a fresh donor or frozen eggs. So like what we were talking about earlier, um, there's not that much research, but this blog has the most research that I have seen that is actually science-based articles. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that this is all super useful. So I would love to kind of leave the floor to you to, if you had any kind of like closing thoughts, anything you wanted to kind of like mention that you feel like was maybe vital that you forgot or that we didn't get a chance to cover, but letting, letting the floor be yours. Yeah. Okay. I think it is, you know, it is a very expensive procedure and it is very time consuming. And although for me, I didn't really get any side effects, it can be very taxing on your body, just your body and your emotions and mentally it can be exhausting. So it is not for everyone. And I understand that. But if you're someone that is thinking, you know, possibly later, I might want to have my own biological children, um, then it is a good a good thing to look into and even just going to a console and just having them check your AMH and antral follicle count, just check that and kind of see where you're at just to get an idea. If it's something that would work for you, something that would be worth your time and money, even though that, you know, it is not an insurance. So even though I have those 21 eggs in the freezer, I might not get a child out of it and I won't know until I try to use them. So that is kind of something that, yeah you know, it's kind of hard to swallow is that you went through all this and you won't know the quality of those eggs until you try to use them. So right now they're just in the freezer hanging out, waiting, <laughs> waiting until I decide if I want to use them or not. I'm still unsure. I mean, the reason why I did this was because of the chronic pain. I just wanted to preserve whatever fertility I have right now in case I decide I can't take the pain. I'm going to do the laparoscopy. You know, if I decide that I want to go through with that surgery, I wouldn't want to be afraid of it affecting my fertility and knowing that I didn't have a backup plan with those eggs. Mm -hmm. At least having those eggs there, I kind of know I did my best. I did what I could to try to preserve whatever fertility. And even if I, you know, if I don't use them, at least I tried and I would donate them to research. But if I do get to use them and I get a child out of it, I would be very happy. I know that like biologically, that's not what makes a family. You can make your own family. You can adopt. You can marry someone that has children. There's many options if you want to be, uh, you know, build your own family. Um, but I would want to hopefully have my own biological child. So that is why I did it. But I do feel relieved. I feel like now going forward, especially with dating, I mean, I hope that I stay with my current partner forever. But I do feel now that I know I have them in the freezer. I'm not as rushed and I have more time to really think, am I ready to be a mom? Do I want to be a mom? What if I decide that I just don't want kids after all this? That, that could be a big possibility. I have a lot of friends that don't have children and they're so happy. They live a very fulfilled life and I'm not against 
you know, me not ending up being a mom. I'm okay with if I don't end up having children, but I just want to leave the door open in case, just in case I decide (laughs) that I do want to have children on my own. And there's also, you can use surrogates later. If I decide, you know what? I want it to be my egg, but not my body. Like, I don't want to birth this child, then you can use a surrogate. So I feel, I feel relieved and I'm glad that I had my partner with me through all of it. He was a big help and a big supporter. And he's like, you know, whatever you want to do, I'm here for you. If you need help, you need a ride to your appointment, you need something super supportive. And he kept saying as well, he's like, I'm so proud that you're doing this for yourself. Because he knows like, okay, yes, I'm doing it, hoping that we will eventually fertilize them with his sperm. But if that doesn't happen, then I still have my eggs there. Um, So he keeps saying how proud he is that I took this step to do something for myself to preserve my fertility, to give myself that peace of mind that every year as I'm getting a little bit older, and hopefully I'm getting a little closer to feeling better eventually that I would have that option to use the eggs if I decide to. And not everybody has that option. So I'm so excited that you took advantage. You had the means to take advantage and, you know, you have like an amazing future kind of ahead of you. You have the option there, no matter what happens. Yeah. I hope in the future, this becomes more accessible to everyone. I mean, I wish everyone can do it. You know, I wish it was at least a quarter of the price. (laughs) I wish it was way cheaper so everyone can have access to it. Um, but we are lucky to live in a country that does allow it for for someone like me. There's some countries that you have to be in a uh, hetero marriage to mm-hmm. freeze your eggs. You can't just be a single woman deciding to do it. You can't be a same-sex couple deciding to do it. So I'm glad that I can do it here. You know, even though it is expensive, yeah. I'm glad that I was able to do it here. Oh. Well, Nancy, yeah. you have so much value that you've just brought to this conversation. And I'm honestly so honored that you reached out and come on my little baby pod and resurrected me for the <laughs> after this month and a half. And what a better way than to launch with something like this, which I probably wouldn't even have thought of until way down the line. So I, well, primarily because I don't want kids. So it's not the first thing that I think of, but yeah. <laughs> I love it. And I, <laughs> Absolutely appreciate you. And I am sure that we'll, you know, do another pod in the future. Again, you are just a woman of so many talents and such great, again, such great insight. I'll keep saying it. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. You are welcome. Well, fam, I don't have a full on schedule for the pod. So as everybody knows, I'm kind of doing things. I'm one off here and there. And then, you know, as my schedule frees up, we'll, I'll obviously be launching more podcasts in the future, but obviously if anybody else on the other line has recommendations, has a story they want to share, you guys always know where to find me. Um, and I love you all. (laughs) 